Welcome to WCG Talks Trials, the podcast where we dive deep into the world of clinical research, sharing the latest trends, insights, and best practices from experts across the industry. In each episode of WCG Talks Trials, we'll explore a different area of the clinical trial industry while featuring a diverse range of clinical research and medical professionals. If you're passionate about advancing clinical research, improving patient outcomes, and driving healthcare forward, then WCG Talks Trials is the right podcast for you. We are so glad you could join us today. Hi, everyone. I'm Brad Nix. I'm a Senior VP in Clinical Solutions and Strategic Partnering with WCG, and I'm thrilled to be your host for today's episode on the topic of the ethical biosafety and patient safety concerns in accelerating oncology research. <laughs> Uh, before we dive in, uh, let me remind you to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on your favorite listening platform like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, so you never miss an episode of uh, WC Talk Trials. Uh, we're joined today by three WCG experts, Kareem McDonald's, a director uh, and medical chair for, for WCG IRB operations, uh, Daniel Cavanaugh with our uh, IBC and biosafety perspective, and Al Tejeda, who's a medical director for our endpoint adjudication team. Uh, and I think before we get started, I'd like to start off all of our podcast conversations by getting to know our guests a little better. My question today for the three of you is if you can give a quick intro on your background and then how and why did you come to join the clinical research industry? So I think from there, if agreeable, I'll start with Kurian. Sure. Um, my background, I went to University of Minnesota Medical School, did my clinical work in San Diego and family medicine and came into clinical trials after investigating and exploring the opportunities to help people uh, disadvantaged and otherwise in a larger scope outside of direct patient care. Been with WCG for about 12 years as a chair and a medical chair director and helping out with everything I can get my hands on. Thank you. Over to Daniel. Okay, thanks. My background is I have a PhD in molecular microbiology and immunology, and I got into medical research from an interest in working in the AIDS epidemic, actually, uh, working in Boston and in South Africa. And we ended up developing, uh, doing preclinical and clinical work on gene transfer products that could be used for therapy. And it turns out that a lot of the same modalities share a lot of characteristics with, with developments in oncology. A lot of what we do carries over. And as part of my work uh, in that area at Harvard Medical School, I ended up as the Institutional Biosafety Committee Vice Chair. So I assist with those projects as a major part of my work here at WCG. Hey, my name is Al Tejada. I'm a board-certified family medicine physician and went to medical school at the University of Arizona in Tucson and did my residency at St. Joe's in Phoenix. And from there, I practiced traditional family medicine, both in the uh, outpatient and inpatient setting. And along the way, with my high diabetic population that I had, I was asked to become a principal investigator for a diabetic trial, which piqued my interest. And I thereafter have conducted over 100 clinical trials as principal investigator across multiple therapeutic areas. 
From there, I did afterwards join National Network as medical director for trial delivery and most recently have joined WCG as senior medical director, providing internal and external subject matter expertise to our division. I'm happy to be here and really enjoy this facet of medicine and do what we can to move to accelerate trials and move forward. That's great. So certainly a, a formidable crew. I, I appreciate your, your time and joining us here. It, so overall for our topic as, as preamble, it's clear there's tremendous emphasis on accelerating clinical trials across therapeutic areas, either to facilitate a go-no decision or proof of concept, or ultimately to bring efficacious treatments to, to market in a more efficient manner. And sponsors, CROs, and to a certain extent sites are employing and exploring a number of angles to do it through technology to shorten cycle times or identifying appropriate sites and patient populations to, fa to facilitate more efficient enrollment and treatment timelines. As this pertains to oncology, while there's arguably an even more pressing need to accelerate the development timelines to support patients with no or, or limited good treatment options, I think we still need to consider that there's ethical biosafety and patient concerns in accelerating research specific to oncology. So that brings us to our our topic for today. And I think it, maybe come to Albert first, who would be the the of of all of us the one who's been treating uh, patients in the most recent time frame. But uh, from your perspective, what are the patient safety concerns, maybe specific to oncology, and uh, if you can pepper in how they differ from conventional drug trials? And we'll start from there. Yes, there are patient safety concerns for oncology studies. Patient safety is a paramount concern even for traditional clinical trials, as a certified principal investigator conducting many trials, that was always inherent in every step of the process. Certainly, in, um, the concern is even greater in oncology clinical trials. The study population is more ill, um, they're more vulnerable, uh, the treatments often carry higher risk, the drugs and therapies being investigated are often novel and have unforeseen long-term concerns. So certainly addressing these concerns requires a, a true collaborative effort among the principal investigators, among the sponsors, the regulatory agencies such as FDA, uh, and even patient advocacy groups to ensure that patients receive uh, the best possible care while still providing the objective and evidence-based information and data needed to really make an impact and allow clinicians to make recommendations and the FDA to make recognition moving forward. Yeah, there's certainly a need for greater safety monitoring in oncology trials. Perfect. Perfect. And Curian, maybe to you, with novel treatments, what are the issues in uh, patient understanding, uh, maybe the actual risks that they're considering from your experience with the board? Absolutely. As Al pointed out, the more sick po population in their particular disease state, the interventions needed to treat the very difficult problem that is cancer can be more complicated, more complex, and just have more difficulty in understanding them. Bringing in gene transfer or cellular treatment tend to have much longer and different kinds of risks than, for example, small molecule risk. And people need to understand the acceptance that there may require increased time and effort just on a baseline level. Although they're drugs per se, they act very differently than what a drug might be. 
there's also the consideration that there may not be animal models. And so we may be coming into a novel system, even be able to discuss with participants about what those risks and considerations are. And there's also the appreciation that there's a poor understanding of risk percentage and expectedness and all those kind of intense scientific terms coming into it, which may lead to media or other exuberancies that may color people before they even get a chance to talk to an investigator. So communicating clearly, taking the time to go through and make sure that participants really understand, especially in oncology situation where it's this or perhaps nothing um, is really important. Yeah, it's really wise commentary, particularly in the world we live in, where the media cycles have shortened so much that it's impacted and shaped the way that we um, consider and, and approach research, I think, specific to oncology. I think to that end, with, with new developments, it may be wise for us to cover a bit about the an Institutional Biosafety Committee, which, while isn't new, it has certainly gained some market share as, as gene and cell therapies have, have taken on a lot of visibility in the past five to six-year cycle, give or take. So I think from here, Dan, it'd be great to hear from you, from your perspective on IBCs overall. Sure. Uh, an interesting point about IBCs is that they're not new in the sense that when it comes to basic research, they were uh, mandated going back to 1975, soon after the first recombinant DNA was applied in microbial systems. There was growing concern that th these could lead to hazardous outcomes to the general public or to people working in the labs. And that was the creation of the NIH guidelines for research involving recombinant and synthetic nucleic acid molecules. And those guidelines uh, coming from the NIH require that institutions uh, with certain types of funding must have an institutional biosafety committee to review the handling of those materials. And as that basic science was translated into clinical trials, the guidelines were amended to address those points. And we now have specific rules for IBC review of clinical trials. And what those rules require is that there's a committee made up of scientific experts um, microbiologists, biosafety professionals, and also uh, local members of the community who live or work near the site, uh, not affiliated with the institution, who are voting members. And those committees work together to ensure that the risks related to the handling of those materials are properly addressed. And in particular, with oncology, we're seeing a lot of very interesting new products that are genetically modified that contain DNA, mRNA, or live viruses or bacteria that are potential biohazards. And the role of the Biosafety Committee is to ensure uh, proper oversight of their handling and administration. That's great. It's certainly needed with the, with the direction that we're taking from treatment modalities. And further to that, can you help us understand that maybe the distinctions as well as the relationship between an IRB and an IBC? And maybe if we can talk about the ordering of review as that's, as that's important to, to oncology research and approvals. Yeah. So that is something that has changed over time. There were previously mandated 
review items required for the IBC that overlapped with IRB concerns more than they do today. The guidelines were amended most recently in 2019. And under the current rules, and we can focus on the current state of affairs, the IBC is focused on protecting staff, visitors, environment, and the general public. The IBC is not required to review informed consent. It's not required to review safety events affecting enrolled subjects. The IBC does review safety events affecting study staff in case of a needle stick or material splashed in the eye. Those would go to the IBC. So it's a separate type of safety review now. It doesn't mean that at a Providers such as WCG or at an institution that the committees shouldn't work together because they have a lot of shared interest and a lot of shared complementary expertise. The federal rules do not require serial review. One can come before the other or not, depending on an institutional preference. So the IBC team work at WCG, working with Curian's team, does things in parallel because that's most efficient for sites and it's uh, the best way to promote cooperation uh, for our teams. But it's up to the institution to order the sequence according to their own needs. That's great. Thank you, Daniel. Curian, anything to add from the IRB perspective? No, and as much as Daniel's correct about it's up to the institution. I would say that IRB and IBC working together is a requirement. You can have the expertise, but the perspectives are different. The way they're looking at them are different. And looking at two of the same thing from different perspectives will definitely yield the best results theoretically, and especially in this area of new and novel things. It's really important that the two work together. But so I think with that as a stage, Al, to you, so what are your ideas as to how safety concerns for oncology studies and, and patients can be mitigated? What what can we prospectively do to overcome some of the issues that we're seeing, particularly when it comes to the acceleration? So, so that's a good question. Again, repeating that these are complex patients, quite ill, quite vulnerable, and typically have already failed conventional therapy. Uh, or they may be rare cases that you don't see very much of across globally. And so some of the things that could be put in place and should be put in place are starts at the beginning. Certainly uh, enlisting patient advocacy groups to ensure uh, that their voices are being heard. Uh, study design, including objective design, whereby the standard of care that perhaps the trial is being compared to, that standard of care may change as these trials are quite uh, long in duration, that can mm-hmm. be for several years, and the comparative arm may differ. Having adaptive study design is important. As Perrin mentioned, having a really quality, thorough, but transparent and understandable informed consent so that not just the patient, but their caretaker, their caregiver, their family uh, knows what's involved, both the potential benefits as well as the risk uh, that are known at the time. Um, and then lastly, but not certainly not least, are implementing safety checkpoints. And this is where um, uh, my team gets involved. Eligibility adjudication committees, whereby 
the inclusion exclusion criteria may be quite uh, extensive, and there may be some subjectivity to it, and it may not be as well defined as other more uh, traditional conditions that we see, rate of hypertension or diabetes and so on. And so getting uh, some experts that are unbiased, and again, biases come from, can come from not just the principal investigator, but also from cultural standpoint or regional or global. These are studies that are being done in different countries, and they may look at a different. Having an eligibility education committee can help ensure that not only are the right patients being excluded and having less concern or risk to them for adverse events, and they may not benefit from the trial itself, but also making sure that those that can be included are included because the cases of N may be quite small for these rare cases. And so you want to make sure you don't overlook and and under include those really patients that could benefit. So that's very important. Next are the data management committees, and they're really important. They look at, on a regular basis, the data from the trial to assess safety and efficacy on an ongoing basis. And they can make recommendations to modify the trial and to even terminate the trial if they see some uh, significant adverse events or concerns or to stop it temporarily until things are changed. Um, And lastly, the endpoint adjudication committees, which, again, much like eligibility adjudication committees are they're a group of experts that are unbiased, and they look at endpoints. And these endpoints are parts of the protocol that have been uh, assessed and defined as best as they can, but still, it's not always easy. For example, traditional trials may say your blood pressure changes X amount, or maybe looking at your hemoglobin A1C, or may look at for cholesterol. In oncology trials, the endpoint may be tumor size regression. It may be uh, patient-reported outcome changes. It may be a very difficult, highly sensitive assay that's quite new and novel and that may require some interpretation as to the data results. And so at the end, you'll have a more reliable, more reproducible, more precision, and certainly unbiased endpoints that one can then build and make recommendations not just for the FDA, but to forward to clinicians for review and have more confidence that those trial data are real and valid and helpful to them. Al, I, I have a question about the eligibility determinations. What is the timing of events compared to screening, consent, and enrollment for these types of determinations to take effect? That's a great question. They're actually quite brief in time. So uh, one can actually, our group can actually get the information from the site and can package it and give it to the uh, eligibility education committee and have turnaround in as little as a few days just to get them in the trial and make sure that no time is spent that's lost or momentum or um, other factors that interfere with that. But no, that's a good question. And it does come up. One, sometimes there's a concern that it may lengthen and be so much more cost-draining uh, to the study. But again, the idea is to get the right patients in the study, and that's critical. Yeah, it's certainly an important step. From my perspective in overseeing trials, I've seen the 
entrance adjudication uh, really help to uh, limit the number of, of protocol violations that are entered in a study, which can be really damaging, particularly when you get to rare disease or oncology studies with lower numbers of, of patients overall that for, for the power. I think with that as a springboard, we are seeing a, a, a trend, and I think the industry is, is quite aware of this, but trials are getting more complex. There are additional secondary objectives, exploratory objectives, and a fair amount of, uh, at times, procedures that um, are above and beyond what we've seen perhaps as soon as a, a decade ago. So, Karen, coming to you, I think as we're seeing some of these trials increase in, in complexity and through board review, what kind of real-world barriers do you see? see existing between research and the actual clinic and actual treatment of patients? That's a really great and tough question because the IRB is not necessarily charged with and actually are supposed to avoid looking at the long-term social implications. However, it is an ethical concern and we regularly hear from people that the trials that are being run, especially for these gene transfer and cell products, are not really what will be where people live. That is, the real-world average oncologist, standard community oncologist, does not have the IBC necessarily to oversee everything. They don't have the, or would not be otherwise used to having the trained staff and and um, other devices there to be able to run things. If they get a report of this complex assay, do they know what to do with it? So producing something that in a research study looks great on number wise, especially as these complexities grow up, make it much more difficult to know for sure that they're going to end up in doing what we all want, which is to help people and actually speed the treatment of patients and improve their lives. Overcoming insurance or other peer barriers is another big concern that obviously doesn't come to the IRB. And regardless of this, <laughs> oncology treatment is horribly expensive and a upfront cost, which may be long-term cost-effective, may not be something that in real world is going to be adopted. And so if the clinical trial gets out there and no one actually adopts it, either because they don't understand that it's going to work and they being insurance companies, that is going to be a fail. So you get approval, but no one uses it. That's not great for anyone who's ever been in the trial. Some of these things, especially these one-time cures or producing cycles and cycles of infused drugs or long-term maintenance, expressing, I mean, those are great. The Especially the patient burdens on some of these need to be balanced against that idea of chemotherapy. Autologous treatments can require a significant amount of time, hospitalization, and other things that can affect someone's schedule. Can you understand what that means? Are you comparing it to chemotherapy, which... It's not just a drug being given. You're going to be real sick for a while. So how do those things really work together? Survivorship is another real big consideration. If we're testing these drugs, the people who have failed everything else, is that a true measure of how well they might work in other populations? And doing those kinds of transitions into what we've seen in clinical trials and the way clinical trials are designed is really important. As Al mentioned, these adaptive designs are horribly important so we can bridge those gaps between I'm just figuring out what this thing is in a human because I don't really have a good mouse or animal model. All right, it works in a human reasonably well in this situation. Does it work in a bigger situation? And then can I bring it to actual the run of the mill person? Those are huge leaps in 
uh, issues to consider, and especially I would consider ethical level issues for us as society. I don't know how we're going to do that as a society, but we need to have some good leadership. I know we have some, the White House is looking at it for sure with a number of their efforts. There's some also big pharma leaders that are providing really great ideas for how to progress that as well. I think it's all working together. It's really going to be a way to address this big issue. Back to IBCs, what options are available to 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 the sites and investigators uh, to gauge uh, to to engage rather for IBC support and maybe to to help them uh, with some of the issues inherent? Daniel, probably throw that to you if if agreeable. Sure, and <laughs> Korean sort of pointed to an issue, which is. Uh, sites that want to engage in this type of research will, in most cases, need an IBC registered for the site in order, when we say this type of research, we mean research with genetically modified products, which are a large portion of a lot of the new cutting edge oncology products. And I can provide some comfort based on what Kirin was saying, is that the IBC is actually a very doable step that since there are teams here that are able to uh, here at WCG will work with sites at major universities or at very remote areas actually around the world and developing countries too for some of these projects that the IBC it can be experienced in helping sites at all different levels but what the site would need to do is get in contact. If, if they don't have an IBC, they should find out if they have one. And what it has to be registered with the NIH. And so there's a registration step required, the letter of authorization from an institutional official, and recruitment of a roster, submission of that to the NIH. And that will stand up the committee. When the committee is ready to go, then They'll have to work with an analyst or someone else provided by the committee to make sure that the projects are ready for review and approval by an IBC. In the case of a site that's we sometimes call naive or new to this type of research, they can just reach out and talk to an analyst in this area to get them registered, get them ready to go, and have an onboarding situation where they can learn about the re- those federal requirements that we mentioned for the conduct of this kind of research. That is frankly a much easier step than some of the other barriers that Curry mentioned, which have to do with facilities and, and training and equipment for something like an autologous CAR-T product, which is really very complex, higher levels of complexity than, than the IBC, which is more solvable. Yeah, I think you're you're certainly right. And the logistics of, of autologous CAR-T are, it's really, it's quite mind-boggling. And I think it'll be interesting to see how the uptake is in, for CAR-T in institutions that are not academic medical centers once in, in practice, once that goes to a, more of a community-level setting. Oh, wait, Daniel, just out of curiosity, how many sites do we have registered uh, under IBC? 650, about. It's quite a number. Great. Daniel, I wonder if you can fill us in on a bit of your thoughts about the emerging biosafety questions specific to oncology research. There's a lot of very interesting developments. One of them relates to combination treatments where you may have a CAR-T cell and 
an oncolytic virus. So there's a virus that replicates, it kills the tumor, it sends an immune signal out, and then at the same time, you may come in with genetically modified T cells to try to treat the same tumor. And now you've got two two separate, what would have been two separate reviews that have to be simultaneous, and that provides extra challenges for risk assessment and biocontainment questions, et cetera. Another even more challenging issue relates to what happens when people are treated with a product that may be shed, meaning that after they receive a virus, they go home and there's a possibility that the virus will still be shed from their body and appear in the environment uh, with potential exposures to close contacts or family members of the public. How is that addressed? Those sorts of questions should not be absolute barriers to research at all, but they are an emerging issue. They're they're an issue for the IBC because it's a biosafety question. Uh, How are these agents contained? And I think it's also an issue that may be addressed by the IRB because Mm. if there's a a risk that the subject's carrying around that is going to apply to their willingness to participate or potential harm that they may be potentially um, exposing their family to. That's something that is often supposed to be in a consent form or hygiene instructions that are given to the participants that as part of the enrollment or consent process. And I know that Koreans teams do look at those issues. And Korean, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's a very interesting space because it does directly point to the need for the IRB and the IBC. That is the IRB looking at the participants' rights and welfare and the IBC looking at everyone around the participant, but not the participants' uh, welfare as being a place where the IRB and the IBC must absolutely collaborate. Um, the risks of the participants considered as they would feel bad if they got one of their loved ones really sick. It's a weird kind of way to think about a risk, but whatever gets the job done um, is great. Uh, Again, the regulations do require that the IRB would be responsible for finding risk or unanticipated problem involving risk to human subjects or others. And the others would be the great place for this family member to come in or, again, the general community. You've got your weeping wound as you go to your grocery store, that's never going to be a great idea. Or what did your family member look out for? Do you want to tell the participant, make sure you tell your family member, or you just want to give the family member the instructions about what to do to protect themselves as well? Very uh, great point case for IBC and IRB working together closely on these. And obviously the investigator, and maybe Al would like to speak to that part as well. Yes, I think I missed that question. If you don't mind repeating it for me. We're we're talking about emerging biosafety questions, such as those that may relate to um, a live virus or bacterium given to somebody that would then uh, create a potential biosafety concern for the community or for family members. Well, that's a good point. And Kurian brought up most of the points from a clinician standpoint. Most of these, many of these oncology trials tend to be at academic tertiary centers, given the 
resources that are required and the comprehensive evaluation that's needed. And with that, there are many times more opportunities for adjacent types of paramedical type of of assistance, whether it's home care, other outpatient care, as well as inpatient care. But, you, but those concerns and those risks are certainly noted as, as what Curry mentioned earlier. But Daniel, you touched on some of the more complex trials that we're seeing, maybe one that incorporates a CAR-T element as well as an oncolytic virus concomitantly. Karin, I wonder from a review perspective, how we grapple with dual modalities. Both are very new, both are incredibly complex. And I, I know they present challenges for both IRB review as well as uh, sort of ongoing safety. So I wonder if you can if you can talk about that from your experience from the board. Sure. And the major issue here is the monitoring and to make sure that we're doing appropriate things, especially oncology studies. The bad things happen to people who have cancer. Was it caused by the research or not? And especially as we go into very novel or combinations of novel products and treatments, which is the one at fault? Is it at fault at all? And even if so, what is best to be done about it? Someone has a bad reaction uh, of some kind to try to get into and know how to address it appropriately is very difficult, especially just very nut and bolty about should other people continue to get this or not? It looked promising. Someone had a bad reaction. I don't know what caused that exactly. Um, Usually we just pause the research, put everything on hold. Would that be true for a CAR-T that's half in process? Do we want to lose those, the investment that's gone into it? Can we take that product and just put it on the shelf until we figure out the other component, which may be an issue? What do we tell participants about their current participation in that very same situation? We said you may get a product in a month or three, and now it's on hold and you don't know what you're going to get, especially for people who have cancer, telling them, I don't know, it's just like life-changing. So there's a number of really not good answers sorts of situations that arise in these situations. Again, it is really best for good and clear communication and be as transparent and uh, timely as possible, getting as much information as is reasonable and helpful to participants in the best way that we can. Again, tough, hard answer for a tough, hard question. Yeah, it's well put. There are a lot of unknowns in oncology research, and I think that's why our topic today, even shortening the timelines in oncology, we certainly want the research to be robust, formidable, repeatable, of, of, of a high quality. And unfortunately, there's a lot of time elements that are, that are challenging to overcome. So uh, there are a lot of tough conversations with uh, with both clinicians and, and patients, and uh, and we work in a in a world of of unknowns. Yeah, I think to that end, maybe sticking with you, Kareen, what do you think is an unrealized um, ethical issue that that faces specific to gene and cell? There's there's a lot of emphasis currently on on gene and cell, and there will be for the foreseeable future as the the gains we've seen in progression free survival, overall survival are really impressive to say the least. But I know that causes some other unrealized problems down the road. So I wonder if you have a purview on that. Yeah, especially to the idea of accelerating the clinical trials. There are two points I think we brought up earlier at the start of the 
talk the issues of flow being not wanted by sponsors or CROs, but patients want it faster through. It is really an ethical issue to get the right answer as soon as possible. We mentioned go, no go questions. We don't, the more people you expose to a research agent that to answer that question is not good. So how we get to the go, no go is really important. The other thing on the flip side of that is if it's working well or could be something good, the loss of momentum would also be as dangerous and as unethical. We saw this in the early days of gene transfer where had a lot of potential, had a very unfortunate episode with a person in the trial in the field just hit a brick wall. And we're really seeing some good momentum going forward, which I can only assume is due to a reinvestment in money and interest and less so some light year leap in technology. Um, we have seen some things out of COVID that have allowed for mRNA technology, which introduces the concept of genetics into the common parlance and ways that research goes forward, but that's not the same thing at all. This uh, potential also goes for some things that have been in the news recently in the science area about in vitro gene editing and at what point are we going too fast and too far without missing the opportunity to go far and fast enough, getting the right amount of momentum, really a tricky balance to play. This, this techno technological momentum may be an issue as Issue, uh, for an issue that we brought up previously, which is at what point have the technology we built been so complex that it's not really feasible? We can do it in a clinical trial because there's a lot of weight and issue behind it, but to bring this momentum out into the clinic and make sure that it actually carries forward into real life, we already touched on before, but that next level of momentum as an ethical issue is also really a concern, as I mentioned. Um, Dan or Alice, do you have any comments? I think I'm a little more, I'm optimistic about the ability to take these complex items from phase one through three and actually implement them, you know, roll them out because there's just a lot of very smart people working on paving the way to uh, allow these questions to be addressed in broader um, populations. That may mean simplifying the technology over time, or may mean finding new ways to bring people to centers that have the capacity to, to do the research today. But uh, back to another point, Karen, is that there are a lot of unknowns in an area like gene editing, where there's a huge promise. And there's also experts who are simply not sure about the best way to quantify risk of off-target and compare that to the risk of, you know, when I say off-target, genetic modifications that are not intended as part of the therapeutic mechanism. If you can quantify that risk, how does that compare to, as you mentioned, chemo, which is absolutely not risk-free either? And experts in these areas have trouble understanding it. So how do you have an informed consent document that is appropriately informative and is really satisfying the requirements for informed consent. Absolutely, I would not suggest that we should put a stop to the research in any any form based on those concerns, but it is an unrealized uh, issue going forward. Yeah, those are good points, Daniel. Agreed. 
Mal, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the uh, potential future opportunities in oncology research. Yeah, thank you for that question in that there certainly is a lot of future opportunities. And forgive me if I overlap on some of the things that Sharon and Daniel mentioned that I was off uh, audio for a few minutes there. Certainly, potential future opportunities include the precision medicine that was alluded to earlier, certainly targeting subsets, and using things like non-invasive liquid biopsies, which would be less harmful and less threatening and potentially have less adverse events than traditional biopsies. Along the same line, other novel technologies, artificial intelligence, machine learning, the ability to identify vast amounts of clinical data, identify drug targets, predict patient response, optimize trial designs. Those are certainly areas of immense investments right now, and hopeful that down the road, they will certainly produce real true benefits. Digital wearable device, digital wearable devices, they're happening now. Everybody has an Apple Watch practically, and they can, it can pick up AFib. And that's just an everyday product. And so these devices are being produced that can not only give you, hopefully, real-time data collection, but also improve uh, patient-reported outcomes. And along that line would be a better opportunity for decentralized trials where they don't have to, or a patient participant may not have to come to that tertiary care center, they can wear a device and uh, continue with the trial, perhaps uh, in a more natural setting. And then what is happening now already is regulatory agencies such as FDA have already established new pathways for accelerated or fast-track drug approvals. I mean, drug approvals take years, decade even, and if the FDA has identified an unmet serious condition and certainly cancer is identified as such, then there's opportunity to shorten the regulatory pathway, not to circumvent safety or to produce inferior trials, but just to make it more efficient and a faster pathway to get the trial drugs if they are successful and proven to the patients in a timely manner. That's perfect. Al. Yeah, it's it's exciting times. I think we can, it goes without saying, there's a lot of opportunity from both um, technology as well as modalities. And I think with that may be uh, an appropriate time to, to bring this session to a close. Thank you so much for your time, both Curry and Daniel and Al for joining us for this episode of WCG Talks Trials. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We hope you found this episode insightful and that you will join us for future episodes of WCG Talks Trials. Thank you kindly and bye for now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. See you later. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of WCG Talks Trials. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred listening platform as we continue to explore different areas of the clinical research industry. As always, we encourage you to join in the conversation. Feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear on the show by visiting us at wcgclinical.com slash podcast. We're here to serve as a trusted resource as we work to improve lives and accelerate clinical research together.